Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week I speak to Kyle Lewis and Will Strong, authors of Overtime, Why We Need a Shorter Working Week. We discuss the centrality of struggles over working time to the history of class struggle, why the shorter working week should be a central demand of labour movements today, and how we need to reimagine work to build a more just and sustainable world. Thanks, as always, to our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, support us at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here are Kyle and Will on what exactly they mean by a shorter working week. Hello, Will Strong and Kyle Lewis, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you both today? I'm good, thanks. Good, thanks, yeah. Thank you for having us. Good. It's great to have you both here. Um, so let's get straight into it. We're talking about your book, Overtime. And can you just start by telling us exactly what you mean by the shorter working week? Because some people will just hear this and think, well, I haven't got enough hours as it is. So what's the plan? Sure. So I mean, maybe I'll take this one. I mean, what we mean by the shorter working week really is is a reduction of hours uh, without a loss in pay. So keeping your wages the same, but reducing the amount of time that you're spending uh, at work. So that could be uh, a four-day week or uh, a 32-hour week. Uh, depending how you take it, really. So it's really about reducing the amount of work we're doing uh, while retaining our kind of working standards. Um, and where did the idea of the five-day working week even come from to begin with? So the five-day week is a historical and social construction. So we often think about the five-day week as, as a kind of natural thing, something which came about. Um, it's an obvious fact to us and something which we enjoy. We enjoy the weekend. We really value that. But it's not really you know, that well known that the, the five day week came about through trade union struggle, really. So after World War One, and particularly after World War Two, strong labor movements, strong trade unions were asking for and demanding shorter working weeks for their workforces. So construction, mining, and so on. We were working six day weeks. Um, and after World War Two, in these sectors, trade unions and workers within them basically negotiated and demanded and succeeded in winning uh, a five-day week and a two-day weekend for uh, for their workforces, basically. And this had some precedent in America uh, and in Australia, where the eight-hour day was famously won in the 19th century uh, by Australian stonemasons, which we talk about a little bit in the book. So it's a long-standing struggle for shorter working hours. And the five-day week we enjoy today is is basically the consequence of that. So Kyle, what are some of the big challenges that we're facing as a society that you guys think the short shorter working week is going to help us combat? Um, yeah, so in the in the book, we kind of we outlined the, the the shorter working week we see as a kind of multi dividend policy um, or or approach, as it were. So, if we're looking to climate change, uh, climate change activism, or to kind of what we refer to as green strategies, we think that you know shorter working week is both necessary, necessary in the sense that you know multiple studies have shown that a four day week could you know hugely reduce carbon emissions across global economies but it's also desirable as well so to actually reduce working hours whilst retaining pay you know it kind of offers and an, an, a sense of a new deal for workers but also not not only from kind of a, the environmental standpoint but also 
in terms of gender equality. Um, so work in the workplace, not necessarily just paid employment, but also when we think about the, the amount of uh, work that goes on in society is performed by w- mostly women in, in, in the domestic setting. So, so yeah, so from kind of a gender equality standpoint, environmental standpoint, um, we see it as being kind of a, you know, a, a major, playing a major part in, in creating a more fair and equal world. I think there's something else there as well around uh, the mental health crisis we're seeing too. So as we, we also detail in the book, we're, we're looking at a, you know, a, a hugely burnt out society. Mental health issues at work are, are one of the major reasons for sick absences. 17.8 million sick days were lost uh, in 2019 just to work-related stress, anxiety and depression. And so reducing the working week is, is not just about equality or the environment. It's also like a major health issue. And this is something which I think we should, we've not really talked about enough, but it's something which we try and highlight in the book as, as, um, uh, as a really important f- uh, factor of this debate. And what about questions of kind of automation and actually there not being enough work to go around? Because um, if you talk to kind of, you know, a lot of the advocates of this idea, they'll say, well, we need a four day week because lots of tasks are going to be automated in the near future. And, you know, there simply isn't going to be enough work for the stock of workers that we have right now. Um, how does your idea of the shorter working week fit with these questions around the challenges of automation? Yeah, so it's a really good question. It's one we try and um, add some nuance to in the book. Um, the question of automation is obviously a political one. It's not just some kind of inevitable kind of wave on the horizon coming coming to get us, basically take our jobs and so on. How technology is used in the workplace um, and what drives their use is, is, a, is a political as well as an economic one. So historically workers arguing for shorter working hours or shorter working weeks have used the arguments uh, based on the idea that okay look we have new tech in the workplace this is you know post-world war ii the height of fordism we have new technology in the workplace new labor saving technology new automation therefore we should also benefit from this not just increasing profits for the employer but also increasing our time out of work and our wages as well so it's often shorter working week arguments have been pegged to uh, arguments around the introduction of technology. Um, and we think it's important that trade unions reactivate that now. I know that, for example, the Communication Workers Union um, are very concerned around the introduction of automation in, uh, post, in the postal service. So part of their arguments for shorter working hours, which they've succeeded uh, to a large extent, have been based on new technological advances. Now, we're not, as I say, we're not, um, let's say, technological determinists. We think technology is shaped by the forces uh, existing within society. But I think it's it would be a shame for, let's say, you know, those arguing for more progressive causes to basically neglect the question of technology. Because if we if we don't occupy that space uh, of argument, of discourse and so on, then others will. So we shouldn't neglect the question of technology, but we should recognize that what drives it is political and, and economic interests. I, th- I think it's also interesting as well um, when you actually, you know, you do speak to workers. Uh, one of myself carried out a, a, a large kind of scoping report um, with a trade union thinking about working time and its reduction. And when you actually speak to workers, you know, there's, there's often this kind of narrative that people are fearful of automation and they don't want it. But actually, in a lot of respects, people see the amount of unnecessary work that goes on that is kind of time consuming and arduous. Um, and actually would welcome it in a certain sense. Again, the conditions in which it's uh, implemented and the control they have over the work is obviously very important. But I don't think it's necessarily this this kind of this fearful dystopian narrative or that that, that workers have, you know, generally. And I think it's important to state that or restate that. 
So we've just seen um, the SNP back the introduction of a four-day week and they're going to roll it out as a trial in Scotland. What is the structure of this plan and, and what are your thoughts on it? So the plan itself hasn't been fully detailed. There's been um, the SNP have budgeted for um, kind of a trial being run. Uh, it's about £10 million and obviously many voices are saying that, that needs to be increased in order for the trial to be kind of robust and, and dynamic enough to, to, to yield decent results. But it's a really progressive step in the right direction. I think it's the second year in a row that the SNP uh, membership have voted overwhelmingly for, for a four-day week as one of the key policy planks in the SNP's uh, armory, really. So I think that's that's really progressive. And actually, we've been, as, as Carl just mentioned, we've been working with the PCS trade union um, in Scotland. We just published a report, which is a, a, a large scoping exercise involving workers from the civil service asking about the feasibility and desirability of shorter working weeks. And it's, we had an overwhelming response. It's a really interesting set of conversations and workshops around um, how this could transform their lives, their work, their, um, their working lives, as well as their lives outside of work. So in some ways, the conversation around the shorter working week is most advanced in Scotland now, both in terms of the party uh, or the government um, uh, kind of backing it, at least at least in their manifesto, but also in terms of the workforce really coming to the four-day week as as one of their main policy pushes. So it's a really exciting time. And I think we're going to stay abreast of, of, of how it goes there. Yeah, and, and interesting as well, um, there has been kind of the SNP have made attempts at kind of coalition building with the Green Party and the Green Party, of, you know, in, in Scotland have really, really backed uh, the introduction of shorter working weeks. So, so again, there's, there seems to be kind of political will for it to happen there. So, yeah, it'd be really interesting to watch the developments. Um, where else have we seen the adoption or the trial of a four-day week and how's it worked out? Um, so we've seen, we've seen it in kind of multiple companies. So um, adopting four-day weeks. So Will and myself, as, as part of our kind of remit autonomy, we've, um, we've helped companies implement and trial shorter working weeks. So that's, that's been from kind of trade unions, from kind of small startups to uh, housing associations. So there's, there's the scene, you know, and not only in the UK, across the world, we've seen uh, companies adopting shorter working hours and taking it on full time. But not only there as well, um, there was a recent... Um, report in Iceland, which took on, it was over 2,500 workers, so over 1% um, of Iceland's workforce, um, reduced the hours down from 40 hours to 35 to 36 hours uh, and had huge, you know, it's a huge success. We also seen in Spain as well, with the government announcing a huge fund uh, for the trial and adoption of a four-day week. So that would be in conjunction with employers and trade unions. So, it, you know, it really is a kind of idea that's, that's taking off around, around the world. I would say what's interesting, I mean, particularly exciting in a way around the Iceland trial and the study which we published around it was, and it's an interesting uh, kind of conversation around there being a trial and then backed up and followed up by trade union activity there is that once the trial had been completed, um, trade unions in both the public and the private sector then negotiated new contracts for 86% of the workforce in Iceland. So not just the public sector, but the whole workforce, 86% of them. And these new contracts either had new shorter working hours baked in, or they they gave new mechanisms by which employees could uh, negotiate for shorter working hours. So that's a huge step forward. And I think it shows that there can be a kind of two-step approach of trials and then trade unions acting on the results of these trials. And that's something which I think might be replicated uh, going forward. 
you've anticipated my next question, um, which was going to be where's the labour movement in these struggles. So maybe just focusing on the UK or, you know, other countries in Europe, where do various different unions stand on the introduction of the shorter working week? Yeah, so it's I mean, it's a really exciting time in some ways. And we mentioned this in the book, actually, uh, kind of calling for trade unions to reactivate their history on this, because for many trade unions, shorter working hours have never really dropped off the menu. It's just that, um, you know, in decline of trade union power, certain other obligations, whether it's pay rises and other things have kind of taken precedence. But shorter working hours for many trade unions has stayed on on, as part of their repertoire of demands, basically. But as it's in this particular historical moment, so the last five years, we've seen a real resurgence of this. So the Communication Workers Union in the UK has now achieved uh, a reduction of working hours across like a five-year period um, for Royal Mail workers. That's really, really exciting. That's kind of That was a kind of firing gun of, of, of some of these um, conversations here in the UK. Um, we just mentioned PCS Scotland who are looking, who are looking to put this as part of their... Uh, pay negotiations, um, Forza, which is a, a trade union in Ireland, they're starting a huge campaign on reducing the working week to a four-day week, um, which we're going to be, you know, watching very closely. Of course, Iga Metal in Germany um, have been have negotiated uh, a variety of working time reductions and pay rises as part of a part of that set of negotiations. So that's really exciting, um, and of course, there are a number of independent campaigns which kind of dovetail with these with these trade union campaigns so this is the four-day week campaign in the uk as well as ireland as well as germany and and abroad so it's 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 an interesting mix of of, of the labor movement waking up to this but also more um kind of social campaigns kind of dovetailing with it and i'm sure we'll see more coming out i know that for example sharon graham um, the new head of unite she's written before many times around the shorter working week being part of the kind of set of demands that we need to be making in an era of technological innovation in an era of climate change and so on so i think that's an exciting thing to watch to see see how these larger unions are really going to move on this you obviously work with organizations at autonomy to help them introduce a shorter working week what are the impacts that you've seen both on workers and on the businesses that you've worked with it's been kind of a huge success really um all the trials that we've kind of carried out is the tendencies or the kind of impacts that we see uh, from a worker's point of view, uh, massive reduction in kind of stress, in work stress, much better work-life balance, people feeling they have kind of more control over their work, just feel better rested as well. From the employer's point of view, they've seen, again, a, a kind of big uptake in productivity. So again, that's something we kind of try to uh, try to emphasize when we work with companies is that, you know, there is nothing kind of steadfast about productivity and to actually, instead of kind of, you know, trying to squeeze the worker and to try and implement a, a kind of culture of hard work is staying at your desk for as long as possible, try and see the benefits of actually thinking about that the other way and thinking about if you give staff more time off, they're better rested, they actually, you know, perform as it were better at work. And also then from a kind of retention uh, and recruitment standpoint, you know, companies are seeing the massive benefits in doing this because obviously it allows them to advertise this. It's seen as a kind of, you know, very advantageous for for companies uh, to give workers the same kind of rate of pay, but working, say, a four-day or 32-hour week, especially for companies that might not be able to compete with the larger salaries of the big players in the sector. So, yeah, they're, they're the kind of main benefits um, that we've seen from, from the trials. 
I think this is an interesting point, right? Because a lot of more moderate voices would advocate the introduction of a four-day week based around these considerations of productivity. So it's going to boost worker productivity. And we see this as well in the tech sector with, um, you know, the kind of tech bros saying, oh, well, automation's coming for us, so we need to introduce this and also it'll make our workers more productive. If we've got all of these kinds of voices saying this is something that we need to do, can it really be that radical? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I think it's something which the, as we move towards shorter working hours or more, this conversation grows, it's something which needs to be reckoned with in some sense. I think from the straight off the bat, and I think in our in our book, we make it very clear that this is, you know, this is there, there is an argument that perhaps the strongest argument is about freedom, about free time, a value which we can probably all get behind. And it's not just about a freedom for, you know, a, a few people, a few first movers, a few quite good employers compared to, let's say, the, you know, the Amazons of the world or the, the, uh, the kind of the sweatshops and so on. We want to make clear that this is an argument for, for, for all workers, all, all, everyone who works, that a shorter working week is desirable and has to come about. Now, I think it shouldn't be sniffed at that some companies are doing it nonetheless. So I think it's important that there are precedents, that there are first movers. That's always going to be the case when, when, you know, new ways of working, new ideas about the future of work come into being. There's going to be, there's going to be that, that fact, basically. And I guess we shouldn't necessarily think of capital as one giant homogenous blob, but instead, you know, there are uh, employers, whether they're NGOs, charities, or, yeah, or, or firms in the private sector who do want to, you know, create decent working conditions for their workers. That shouldn't be sniffed out. I think that's important to necessarily encourage. Having said that, yes, this is why it's so exciting that that trade unions from from uh, say in the public sector or in or in all sorts of different sectors are kind of reactivating this demand, and that's why you know that's the kind of scale that we, we want to be seeing this at. So we see it as a kind of three at least three pronged kind of strategy here. You've got first moving uh, employers, really like progressive employers. You have trade unions pushing it across sectors and across workplaces, and really the kind of kind of reactivating that trade union demand and then thirdly you have governments basically enabling it creating new whether it's new legislation whether it's um you know as spain are doing raising money to fund trials and so on that kind of three-pronged strategy is is, is really um, it seems to be the most effective so it's not just about tech bros it's about moving the whole society towards it a lot of the kind of examples that you mentioned are all states or or unions based in the global north is this struggle relevant to other parts of the world where many workers don't even have a five-day week uh, because they're maybe not in formal employment? Yeah, I mean, there's there's there's, there's two ways of answering this in, in a way. If you talk about relevance, in, in, in one sense, it's not relevant in terms of it's not even on the menu in many of these countries. In terms of its it, the, the the demands put forward by labour movements and and uh, social struggles in these countries are for sometimes more basic things such as a decent living wage, um, decent housing, decent you know uh, things like sanitation and, and and public services. On the other hand, we have to acknowledge that the, short, the shorter working week in uh, places in the global south and where a lot of of the world's manufacturing production and so on is carried out is incredibly relevant just because these these workforces work the longest hours in the world so shortening the working week is more of a health issue more of an economic economic issue more of an injustice and an inequality issue there so it's something which you know when when families are working kind of back to back around the clock and um, let's say in a garment factory or a textile factory and so on that is a conversation around working time and that's something which is which is, there's a huge inequality between working time to the south and the north that's 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 the case just as much as it is the case around pay and so on so i think that's it's both something which is kind of not really um 
uh, front and center of, of our working struggles um, in in many places, but nonetheless, it's entirely relevant. So that conversation and that struggle is there to be had, basically. And I think it's important to to think about the way in which I think there's a there's a, a kind of liberal mindset that thinks that we, and especially in the global north, you know, came to a kind of five day working week with two days off. That this just this came about through the kind of liberalisation of the markets and through you know good employees doing the right thing. Whereas when we actually look to you know the history of the labour movement, um, we see that it, it was a struggle and these were hard earned wins and that the kind of working hours that a lot of uh, people endure in the global south today, these were the same working hours and the same kind of poor working conditions that. Uh, that people in the global north, especially in kind of Victorian uh, England or the UK, had to endure as well. And, and that only came about through, um, you know, through organising, through the labour movement um, and by putting uh, the the production of the working week, you know, front and centre of, of their demands. Um, so I, I do think it's really important to kind of state that. Mm-hmm. That brings us nicely onto our next question, which is why do you think that um, the fight over working time has been so central to the history of class struggle? And relatedly, why are these struggles so kind of important to to capital? And why is winning these struggles so important to the fun- functioning of global capitalism? Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I always think it's interesting to look at, if you look at, for example, lists of the wins that trade unions and worker collectors have won over the years, the majority, and maybe I won't say the vast majority, the majority are basically around time away from work. So things like uh, pensions at the end of your life, uh, maternity leave, paid holiday, uh, weekends, um, sick leave, things like that. The, these these seem obvious to us. But if you think about it, that is just about having secure, materially supported time outside of work in order for people to pursue their interests, family, friends, and so on. So that's something really important to remember that. If you just, just simply looking at a list of achievements. Now, historically, you know, since the start of capitalism, since the start of industrialism, shorter working weeks been front and center simply because, well, at least primarily because of the working conditions within factories, within workplaces. So once you're congregating workers into, into uh, huge factories, working them to the bone with you know, excessive hours as well as horrible conditions, it's immediately almost kind of imminently generated that we need to have more time away from this place. Basically, this we're working for an employer. The conditions are bad. And actually, who's profiting from this? Really, it's not us. So we need to limit the amount of time that we're in the workplace. And this is something that Marx knew very well. And that's why he has a chapter in his in Capital simply on the fight for the working day and why that came about and how that came about. And so I think it's both the conditions within the workplace, but also simply about the relationship of employment. So what, what is employment? It's, it's effectively renting ourselves out for a certain amount of time in order to, you know, for return for a wage, basically. So that relation itself is a relation of unfreedom. It's working conditions. It's a fight for freedom itself. And that's basically dogged the labor movement and has been kind of at the forefront for, for, for yeah, as, as, you, as you mentioned, for generations. And I think that the most radical period is the early 20th century just coming, you know, in, in the interwar period and the post-war period where effectively these huge crises, the wars, really accelerated these demands and ultimately sedimented new working time regimes that we're seeing today. And I think this has lessons for a contemporary period, the COVID period, where, you know, we, we've seen a huge crisis, uh, an economic crisis. It's really a crisis of work. Uh, we, should, we should be very clear about that. It's, 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 it's how we work. It's when we work and so on. So similar to the world wars, we have a crisis of work 
And now we're seeing demands for pay and for working time have a real acceleration. And that's something which is, which is really, um, you know, it's a really exciting phenomenon. I, th- I think it's quite nice to maybe categorize the points that Will was making in terms of, you know, freedoms in work. So that might be negotiating, you know, better pay conditions, but also, and what's also always been relevant to the labor movement has been getting these, having these freedoms away from work as well, to have more of our own time to do what we want to time for what we will, which is part of the kind of eight hour movement. So, and especially now with, you know, labor shortage in, in, in the UK and, and across the world, but especially in the UK and the US, I think it's important to kind of restate that, you know, that we shouldn't just be fighting for one, you know, obviously paying conditions, you know, increasing pay is, is really important, but also making sure that we, that we put working time to have those kind of freedoms from work, having a secure pension making sure we have enough time for ourselves is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a really important, um, really important aspect of it as well. Obviously this, um, you know, these, these questions around work and mental health and overwork aren't the only issues that we're seeing around work and that the labor movement are fighting against today. We've also got a load of other questions around precarious work around, you know, the gig economy, um, in the UK, things like fire and rehire, and of course, long-term low wages or stagnant wages. How's the struggle over working time linked to these other struggles? Well, I think I think you can see from both ends there's a kind of polarisation. So for some people, they experience underemployment, like you say, from kind of gig work to being on zero-hour contracts. And then the other side of it, we see you know people being very much overworked as well. So I think this is there's a conversation to be had in terms of how much kind of necessary work needs to go on in the economy and how can it be redistributed, you know, so, so that we all kind of experience we have enough work but not too much of it as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think, as you say, Grace, there's it's the shorter working hours uh, kind of demand, the demand for a 40 week isn't a silver bullet. So can't speak to every single issue, but it, not, it does have some relationship to the kind of deterioration of working conditions in other employment contracts or working contracts. So for example, if you do improve working time conditions in the standard employment labor market, and so if you tighten up the market, reduce the working week and create more opportunities, and there will be a, a certain amount of um, uh, employment created, jobs created due to the kind of reduction of, of labor being carried out. And that does affect workers in those or involuntarily in those gig economy jobs and those precarious jobs. So they'll have greater opportunity to join the more standardized kind of labor market have better conditions and so on so it's 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 not the these two uh, labor markets aren't operating in isolation so you, you shore up one you create better conditions in one then you you create more opportunities to those who don't want to be in the gig, gig economy but have to be by necessity they can kind of make that transition so it, it will be something that benefits everyone even if you're not necessarily affected as someone who's self-employed directly and you talked about this a little bit earlier, but can you tell us a bit more about how the fight over um, working time is linked to feminist struggle? Sure. Yeah. So um, what we argue in the book is basically there's, there's at least two main reasons why why the shorter working week is is, is has been and is continues to be part of uh, feminist struggle, basically. And that's on the one hand, because in general, if you count employment, so um work in the labor market, but also the unpaid work at the home, food prep, childcare, uh, looking after relatives and so on. Women do a greater amount of work, sheer amount of work than men in general. So uh, women do 60% more housework than men. 
And so the idea of reducing the working week, whether that's reducing employment or redistributing the unpaid work, that's has been a that's been a primary concern for feminist uh, struggle, feminist groups, and so on for decades, basically. So that's why it's it's front and center. But then, secondly, if you look at uh, female employment in the labour market specifically, so just focusing on that area of of, of work. Women tend to work in jobs which are more stressful. So the public sector work, whether it's care work or teaching, for example, those jobs have tend to have worse conditions, worse pay and so on, and are, 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 tend to report greater stress, basically. So reducing the working week across the board, particularly in these sectors, will be a benefit to women primarily. So for those two reasons, overwork in general, but also working in, in jobs which which tend to um, kind of create greater stress, it means that short working week is, is, uh, is, is particularly relevant to women. I think that's an important point that Will picks up on there in that the introduction of a shorter working week could hopefully create the conditions or the possibility for creating that cultural shift in which work is is redistributed or distributed more evenly uh, across the genders. You know, I, I give the example when it came to uh, when, for me growing up, I thought it was perfectly normal for my mum to work a full time uh, job as a nurse and then come home do pretty much the, the vast majority of all the cooking and cleaning and then help me and my brother out with our you know homework or whatever you know that was whereas my, my dad just did his job um and you know so just reducing the working week won't be enough in itself but hopefully it can create the conditions where we start thinking about the cultural shift that's needed and how we kind of redistribute all the work that goes on in society not just the kind of the work of paid employment the pandemic seems to have really shifted the conversation about working time why do you think that is and do you think this is going to be a lasting change um i think i think it's one of the one of the main reasons is due to uh the adoption of of home working overnight i think for a long time there was these kind of big back and forths in the academic literature about whether home working could be done on, on this kind of scale and it was very kind of undecided, but the fact that it kind of happened overnight and we, should, we saw this kind of massive change in the way we worked for a lot of people, obviously not all workers, but for a lot of people, I think kind of opened up the possibility that, hey, can the way we work, can it be very different? Um, so I think, I think that's been kind of one of the, the main reasons for it. And, and people have started kind of questioning a lot of the, the negative working conditions that we encounter. Um, so it, it's definitely kind of opened up the, uh, the debate and we've seen at Autonomy, you know, uh, more people kind of interested in thinking about working time, it's reduction. Um, and yeah, so that, that, that's, that's one of the kind of main, main reasons, I think. I think there's, I think Carl's right that the kind of genies kind of come out of the bottle as it were around remote work, uh, you know, and that's opened up all sorts of conversations about how we work, how long we work for and so on. I think, the way that this this will create lasting change is basically if if trade unions and workers of all kinds basically demand and speak up about what they want from this. So we see we've seen, for example, Prospect Union asking and and, and putting forward the right to disconnect as a as a demand for all kinds of workers the right to basically be able to switch off at the end of the day and not have to answer emails from your employer, which I think is incredibly important during the remote working era, during the COVID era, where a lot of people are, you know, working in the, from the living room, finding it hard to switch off because it's just them and their laptop. And so things like that, I think when now the, the, the trade union movement has, has, has played such a role during the COVID era, I think it would be, you know, it's, 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 it's crucial that 
demands such as the right to disconnect, demands for shorter working weeks, um, and demands for control over working conditions really keep up with with the changing nature of work itself. Because there will always be, you know, demands from the employer side in certain sectors for, for, for the return to the office, for example. Um, you know, real estate is an, is an important asset and, and, and the office environment is one of, of often, you know, it's, it's control of, of workers and so on and so forth. So there's a reticence on the part of many employers, employers we don't think um, should be counted as good employers, there's a reticence to, to allow for these new freedoms, these new um, controls that people might have the, over their work to continue. So it will require pushback from workers themselves. So we're going to see, obviously, a lot more people working from home, as you've just mentioned. And this is a shift that's taking place across a whole number of industries. Do you think that on balance, that's a positive development, seeing a lot more people working from home? Or, you know, are we going to see a stepping up of kind of surveillance of working within the home? And how is this going to impact different sections of the workforce differently? I think we have to be careful in terms of labelling um, working from home, especially under the remit of flexible working as necessarily being a win for workers. Because with flexibility, as we see, it, it goes both ways. There's flexibility um, for the employee, yes, in certain contexts, but there's also flexibility for the employer. So we have to realise that it creates the kind of normalization that wherever you are, you can be working. And I think uh, that that can be problematic. On top of that, like you say, we're already kind of seeing the more kind of uh, surveillance aspects of home working. And, and the fact that people actually working from home for a vast majority of time can, can have kind of negative impacts on mental health. You know, it really does kind of blur the line between work and private life. So, as Will touched upon earlier, you know, having the regulation and policy oversight to make sure that, you know, you can disconnect from, from work, I think is going to be, is, is really, is going to be really important. Yeah. And I think, you know, Carl also mentioned earlier that we should recognize that not all sectors work from home. Obviously a lot of work involves in-person services. Um, and so the right to disconnect and, and these issues around remote working are, are much less relevant to those sectors. So those, those workers will, you know, will be looking for, for other things to improve their working lives after, after the pandemic, better wages, you know, d- decent sick pay and so on. Basic things which we need to really get right in this country. But I think we shouldn't necessarily think of them as a zero-sum game. You know, just kind of improving the lives of some workers shouldn't be seen as somehow a detriment to others. I think it's important to, you know, kind of take each sector as it comes, but also recognize that the wins for workers are, are in, generally, in general good for everyone. And just finally, guys, how does our idea of work in general need to shift for us to introduce a lot of these policies and just to build a more just and sustainable society? I think, you know, I think a a fundamental shift, which is going to sound quite philosophical, is really thinking about work not as simply an end in itself. I think both elements of the political spectrum, whether right or left wing, often treat work as somehow a uh, something which is an end in itself, which gives a natural confirmation of the human essence and so on. I think these frames are quite dangerous. I think in a world of advanced capitalism with labor markets and so on, we should treat our work, and often we mean by work, we mean our jobs, as means to ends. So instrumental to our achieving what other purposes we might have, whether it's just our health, whether it's other pursuits which are beyond just earning a wage. So I think making that shift from thinking about work or our jobs as ends in themselves to means to ends. I think that's just a fundamental shift, which, which kind of does need to happen. And, and we are seeing that. So I think what's interesting about our particular historical moment is the, the further de- degradation of work, basically. So we're seeing 
the precarization of work, the creation of what some people are calling a precariat, the kind of stagnation of wages and so on. These conditions are not conducive to a huge glorification of work. They are conducive to a disillusionment with jobs. And I think putting work in its place like that, thinking about, okay, well, look, work is just a means to an end. I need to earn enough to survive and I should probably have more free time. Those are really positive developments. And that's, that's, that's only possible when we conceive of work as a means to an end rather than an end in itself. Yeah. And I think as well, we're seeing this the kind of space that's been opened up to kind of thinking about uh, the amount we work due to kind of the, uh, the diminishing returns of hard work, you know, um, whether that's being able to get onto the property ladder, have kind of savings, being able to pay off your student loan. So I think with that space being opened up, it's, it's, it's time to really think about the way in which time can be redistributed in terms of, like we said before, making sure people aren't underemployed in society, but also aren't overemployed as well. Will and Kyle, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers, Grace. Thanks for having us.